Well, good morning. I'm so thankful that you're with us. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 7 today, and, and so I would love for you to make sure that you're there in your scriptures and your, in your Bible today, and, and, uh, and let's get those out, and let's uh, turn our face to the Lord. Just before we dive into the passage today, though, I want to uh, just uh, tell you what God has kind of put on our heart as, um, as, as a staff on my heart. And, 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 and you know, we're, we're starting to see a, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, maybe. And, and, and our governor has articulated that, that soon churches can come back together. And if you've followed any of that, you'll, you'll notice that he's articulated these phases. And as we look at our church uh, on both campuses and in our community that God has called us to, in our our uh, our calling that we're in, uh, we kind of, I feel a sense that it's best for us to come back together at a late phase two or possibly a phase three. Our staff is meeting this week, and I'm so grateful for our staff. Uh, I'm so grateful that God has called this group of people together because in a time of crisis, uh, in a time where we are doing ministry like we've never done before, I'm thankful that we have the team that, that God has put together here. I'm thankful for it. So uh, I'm thankful for Joe and their team as they led worship this morning and just Brad and our groups and Keith at the mission and, and Chad and the crew behind the scenes with our technology. And, and so I'm so thankful for our staff. And I know you are too. And, and so let, let's turn our face though to, to, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, I don't know how you have dealt with this, uh, uh, this uh, stay at home, but one of the things that my family has done is, is they got a 2,000 piece puzzle. Now, I hate puzzles. I hate them. Uh, they drive me crazy. And, and we had 2,000 pieces scattered on our pool table. And, and I, was, I, I just was complaining the whole time because uh, I'm more of a big picture guy and all the little pieces drive me nuts. And, uh, but this week, that, that, we finished it. Now, I say we lightly because uh, I think I put in two pieces on that puzzle. Uh, and it was when Robin said, hey, put that there. Be a part of this. And so, so I put, I think, two pieces of that 2,000 piece puzzle. And, but as it came together, it was, I got to admit, it was pretty cool uh, seeing all those little pieces come together to make this really, really cool picture. Um, but you know what's a bummer is uh, as we got it all together, there were two pieces missing. And so now we have this awesome puzzle with two pieces that are gone. So it, 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 it proves my point that puzzles are annoying, right? Um, but, uh, but, you know, the, the truth is, uh, I wonder if that's what the Old Testament prophets felt like as they were putting together these pieces of prophecy of this story of the Messiah, the story of Christ, uh, the, the story of redemption, as God revealed it piece by piece through history. And these prophets of old, like, like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it's, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it points out that all through history, the, these, these prophets got these messages from God really one piece at a time. And, and as these, these, this picture came together that, that, that it was revealed to them that they were not serving their own times, but they were serving a future generation like us. Like here we are in 2020, and, and we're in this future generation. These prophets got these pictures piece by piece, this, this picture of salvation. 
And in and, and the, and, and the Old Testament, you know what it does, and we got to recognize the Old Testament, it shares this incredible, it paints this picture of Christ, uh, this picture of salvation. And that's the Old Testament. And, and, and it's absolutely amazing that we get to look into these things. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12, points out that, that, that even angels long to look into these things. And so what we get to do today, and, and I, I very rarely in my life have thought to myself that angels would be envious of me. I mean, I've wondered about angels. I've thought about their, just their intimidating presence that angels have. They're not precious moments, okay? That's not a good picture of an angel. Uh, the, the, I think about how, how powerful angels are. And I've never really considered that an angel would look at me and be envious. But do you know what we get to do today? What we're doing today as we look at 2 Samuel, Samuel 7 and if 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12 is right, which I believe it is, that angels in heaven are envious of us in this moment because we get to look into 2 Samuel 7. And when I look at 2 Samuel 7, I, I want you to know something about it. I know it's a, it's a complex passage. And it's one of those passages that even as we heard it read, we're like, okay, what? What's the story? What's the storyline? What's going on here? But I want you to know that this is one of the most important messianic passages, prophecies uh, in all the Bible. So what 2 Samuel 7 does is it points forward to Jesus. And I don't want us to miss that today. But I also don't want us to miss the drama of 2 Samuel 7 because it is an amazing moment. So get your Bibles, and let's look at it. Let's turn our face to it. And, 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 and by 2 Samuel 7, now we've been through this. We've been in, the, in Samuel for a while. By chapter 7, David is established. Uh, he's, been, he's been through so much conflict. I mean, think about the conflict that we've seen as we studied Samuel. He's, uh, for a decade, over a decade, he ran from Saul, hiding in caves, and, and Saul's been trying to kill him. And, and then, then now Saul died, and, and, and David is now king, but there's been conflict. We looked at that last week, the conflict that David was in and, and this struggle that he was going through. And, and now, by chapter 7, he's established, and it's going well. And in, in 2 Samuel 7, what David, which where you find David, is he's, he's on his back porch. And he's in this incredible house of cedar. Now, this is a, a sign of luxury, of wealth, of, of prosperity that, that this house is built of cedar. And now most of us have smelled cedar. I mean, I can smell it right now in my own mind. You know, I can, I can tell that. I, I remember that smell. And then here's David on his back porch, essentially. I don't know. He's with, he's with Nathan, the prophet, who's one of my favorite prophets. And, and I get maybe they're drinking Americanos. I don't know. They're, they're hanging out on the back porch. And they're kicking back. And David, for, the, for a, the first time in a long time, can kick back. And here he is. Look at verse 2. And I... And, 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 and as, they're, as they're kicked back, David's looking out over his, the kingdom that God's given him. And he's looking at his nice house, and he looks across the way, and there's the tabernacle. It's a tent. It's, that's where the ark of God is. And, and, and you know, it's about the, the tabernacle, the tent, is about 200 years old at this time. 
Now, I don't really have many structures in my life that are 200 years old, but I can imagine it didn't look like it did at the beginning. And so what does David say? Look at verse two. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now, now I think all of us can relate to this. You know, we can say, you know, look, I'm, I'm living in a place that's nice. And in the house of God over here, it, it, it's a tent. It's not as nice. So, so right there, look, look at this. Nathan, the prophet, uh, they, they can honestly have this conversation. Doesn't God deserve better than this tent? And we can relate to that. I mean, that's my, my 48-year Baptist history conversation of, of let's do something big for God. That's really what David is saying. David and Nathan are like, let's do something big for the God who rescued us and who saved us. And, 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 like, and Nathan's like, cool. I mean, that's awesome. It'd be like a preacher that the wealthiest person in town in, in his church comes up and says, hey, I want to build a building for you, buddy. As a preacher, we'd be like, sweet. Hey, a, a modern uh, response to that is, hey, man, as soon as that online donation hits, we're ready to start building. Let's get after it. Okay, right? And Nathan said, verse 3, Nathan said to the king, Let, go, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And in and, and, and verse, verse 4 through 11, it's interesting because, because th this preacher, he, he, he's like, let's do it. Let's get it done. And then he goes home. And I can imagine Nathan going home going, man, we're going to build something huge for the Lord. And that night, God speaks to the prophet. Look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not, have I not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day? but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Basically, God, God is saying, hey, look, I like my tent, David. He said, Nathan, I like the tent. And this is an incredible statement because, you know, God has been in a tent because God it was with his people. And this is a re revelation of God that is amazing to me. The fact that God wants to be with us. That, that's, that's an incredible statement from the Lord. And I don't want us to miss that because God is incarnational. That's the theological word there. That, that he wants to be with us. And I, I, that, that blows my mind. I think about where we are right now in, our, in this strange time to be, a, to be alive in this social distancing world, this strange moment. God is with us. God has always been with his people. And this is an amazing truth of, of the Lord. And, and, and for me, it drives me to my knees. And, 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 and look what he said to David. Verse 7, look at verse 7. In, in all the places where I've moved with the people Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, now what's God doing here? I think he's getting up in David's grill a little bit, going, going hey, David, Hey, buddy, do you think I'm worried about my accommodations? Do you think I'm worried about the tent that I've established? And, and 
I can, I can just see God saying, hey, David, I know you're in this, this little, my version, okay? I, I know you're in this little Americano sipping cedar house that's pretty nice. But David, hey, don't forget, I made cedar. Uh, you know, I asked my wife this week, I said, Robin, what's the prettiest place we've ever seen together? Because you know what? My wife thinks for me often, and I think that's proved well for me in my life to let her think. Um, and she goes, you know, when we went to Hawaii on our 20th anniversary, we saved up for, for a while to go to Hawaii, and we got to go. And, and we went to these, these waterfalls in a helicopter. And uh, man, we, we hovered over those waterfalls just thinking, whoa. So I can imagine David going, hey, or God saying to David, you think your house is pretty nice, right? You haven't even seen Hawaii, buddy. Oh, what are you talking about? Uh, look, I got this. And, and, and it's interesting. Um, you know, I think about our church. There's so many things I love about our church. There's so many things that drew me to, to, to this church as, I, as we came uh, eight years ago. Um, I love our passion, to, the, the passion of this church to, to serve the Lord, to take steps of faith, to, to go out into the unknown. You know what? I, I love the ambition of this church. When, when I was talking years ago to the, the committee about coming to Owasso, and I, and I listened to, to the ambition of this body, I, my heart said, this is where I want to be. And you know, when I think about um, the lesson here, though, from David, from God to David to Nathan, now this is going to sting a little bit for all of us, because we all have this ambition to do something big for the Lord. But let's recognize something. You realize that God doesn't need us, right? God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. God is, is, is strong. He's, you know, there's a theological term for this. And I want you to hear this term. It's called the aseity of God. Aseity, let me, let me spell it so you can look it up later. A-S. E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God, which basically is a doctrine that speaks to, to God's self-existence, that God is completely self-existent. He is completely self-sufficient. God doesn't need us. And, and, and I want you to turn over real quick to Psalm chapter 50. In Psalm 50, verses 10, uh, turn over there real fast because I want you to see it in your own Bible. Uh, Psalm 50. Verses 10 through, through 12, it says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. You know, in other words, I think back at 2 Samuel 7, God is graciously saying to David, hey, look, buddy, if my house needed an upgrade, I really don't need to come to you for funding, okay? I don't need that. Now, uh, I think what we see here is spiritual ambition. And point number one is important. And, and I want us to recognize this and feel this, that not all spiritual ambitions are allowed. That there are times we will be spiritually ambitious, but God will say no to us. Now, now, here's the point. God's work takes precedence over our plans. And this is something I want us to embrace. 
When I think about the plans that we've made that, that we've had to stop because of this COVID-19 thing, God's word takes precedence over our plans. Now, I've said this before, and we've seen this, in this as we studied this book, that, that we, we got to remember who the main character of this book is. It's not Samuel. The main character is not Samuel. The main character of the book of Samuel is not, is not Saul. The main character of the book of, of Samuel is not David. Who's the main character? It's God. God is the main character. He's the king that Israel needed. And what's interesting, God is saying to David here, God, David, you're not in the driver's seat. I am. And this is very, very important. Now, now, now sometimes we think, God, your work will not continue if I don't step up. Now, now, here's the reality. Uh, let, let's not make this same mistake in thinking that David's making here because, because uh, you know, David is assuming, God, I'm going to do this great thing for you. Now, this doesn't mean that David's not to give or to, to sacrifice for the Lord. You know, it's interesting when I think about what we do for the Lord. I mean, I mean, I mean think about this. God knows that I need to give not because God is somehow in need right now and God is somehow needing my tithe today, my family tithe today. Um, and, and I tithe not because God is in some kind of position of need. No, I tithe because God has given to me and because out of this abundance of joy, I love to give back to him. You know what? Um, God says we need to learn to pray. We don't learn to pray because God is lonely and needs us to talk to him and tell him some things. No, we learn to pray. Why? Because God knows that, that when we pray, that, that it's not our prayers moving God to our will. What happens when we pray? We get on our knees and God aligns us with his will. You know what? We, we worshiped today. Now, we don't worship because God has some kind of self-esteem problem and he needs us to, to say how great he is and how wonderful he is. No, that's not why we worship. When we worship, what happens? God strengthens us. We sing these truths and, and we learn, wow, God, you're powerful in the midst of a, of a crisis in our world. And see, let's understand this, that, that, that what David was learning here is that God, God is allowing David to be a part of his plans. And, and, and this is the joy. We get to join in on God's plans. You know that, right? That's, the, that's one of the greatest things about serving the Lord, that we get to join in on his plans. And David is learning this incredible truth that God is always the giver. And we are always the receivers. And this is the truth about the Lord. Now, now, here's what I want us to know. God is never indebted to us, ever. That, that there's never a moment that, that, that he looks at us and says, hey, I owe you something, mankind. No, we are always indebted to him. And this is what David needed to understand. And, and so what does God do here? God makes a covenant with David. 
And in, and, and in 2 Samuel 7, you see this covenant that, that, that God says to David, hey, you think you're going to do something big for me? Hey, sit down. Sit down, David, because I'm about to do something for you. And I want you to see it. And look at verse 8. It says, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Yeah, right here, he's talking to the prophet Nathan. Nathan you got to go back to David, and this is what you're going to tell him. And I love Nathan. He's my, one of my favorite prophets because he's so bold that he says, all right, God, I'll do it. And he goes back and says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. Now, now, now don't miss this because, because what, is, what does God say here? He says, David, I, I have appointed you as, as a what? What does what, what he appoint him as? As verse 8, what does verse 8 say? What does that language say? Look at it. It says, you're a prince over the people. You know, you know the big problem that God's people were having in Samuel is they wanted a king. They wanted a king to rule over them. And, and God told them over and over again that, that look, you know, I'm to be your king. And then right here, the, these, these earthly kings, they thought they were in charge, but, but look at what God's people are called to. God was going to provide princes for them, not necessarily kings for them. Kings, little K, not kings, big K. And, and and in the story of Samuel, David gets this demotion, if you will. He, he, he gets this, this moment where God says, look, you're to be a prince over my people. And this is the biggest difference between David and Saul. Saul wanted to be, have monuments to himself. And David comes and gets this moment, this call from Nathan, you're to be a prince over, the, over Israel. And David says, oh, I'm honored. I'm honored to let you be king. And I'll serve your people. Look at this. Verse 8 says, you are prince over whose people? Whose people? My people, God says. In verse 9, let's read it. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now, point two is so important that, that we see that this reassuring truth that God makes and keeps covenants. God made a covenant. And when God makes a covenant, he keeps his covenants. And here's what we know about covenants. Divine covenants are eternal. They last forever. Now, God will never break his word. And I'm grateful for that. I mean, we had a, a tragedy with a family in our church yesterday. Uh, a sister was killed in a car wreck in Skyatook. And, and you know what? Yesterday morning, that happened. Uh, but, but let me tell you something. The, uh, God keeps a covenant. This, this precious lady knew the Lord. And let me tell you, the day that, that, that second that she drew her last breath yesterday, she went to heaven. And, and let me tell you something. God keeps his promises. His covenants are eternal. And here's what you know about covenants. Divine covenants are sustained by God, not us. And I want you to recognize the power of that. God is saying to David, I will keep my covenant. I will sustain it. And what do divine covenants reveal? That they reveal the plan of redemption. And this is what covenants are, are this is what they are in Scripture. And let me tell you something. God keeps his word. Look at verse 10 and 11. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And look at this, verse 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You see that? The Lord will make you a house, David. And think about what God is saying there. David, I'm going to... I'm going to bring you rest from your enemies. And, he, and, and this, this idea that, that God would send from David this Messiah that would come and bring rest. And, and look at verse 12. From when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at that. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And, and I love this. I love this. this. This is one incredible story of redemption. And it would come from David's line. This is what it says. David is completely humbled that God would have such an elaborate and huge vision for his life. And see, David is this, God's people here are a perfect example for us because humility is critical for a people to be used of God. And this is critical for us, that, that we are to have humility in our lives, that, that God is humbling not only the king, not only King David, he's humbling God's people. And, and you know what? It moves me every time. When, when God gives me this, this vision, God says to David, look, you're going to be a part of my plans in the world. And every time I get that, I, I, David, I, I join him with that, with that incredible awe, that incredible amazement, that incredible gratitude that, that, that Lord, you would allow me to be a part of your plans. And when I think about that, I'm moved to confident and disciplined obedience to God, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences. You see, I see the Lord moving David. And when you look at his response in verse 17, uh, it, it's amazing as you think about the humility of his life. Let's, let's look at this real fast in accordance. Look at verse 17. Let's, let's feel this. Let's feel the repentance of David. Let's feel his gratitude right here in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes. O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house. 
And, and, he, and he goes on and, he, and over and over again, you see in, in verse 23, therefore, verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you. You redeemed your people, verse, verse 23. Verse 25, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your say, say, servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And in verse 26, look at this. He says, and your name will be magnified forever. And, and this is the, this humility of David, verse 29, look at this. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servants so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed. So, so what's going on here? David is grateful. David is, is amazed. He's, he, he's overflowing with gratitude because God has made a covenant with him. God has just said to David, David, you get to be a part of my plans for the world. Now, when I think about this, David gets this promise from God. Out of your line is going to be someone, a, a king that will give rest to your people. And oh, David, when he heard that, he thought, oh man, I need rest. Uh, isn't life weary? Haven't you been weary in your life? Don't you know that, that, that the, and I'm not being cliche here, but the only way that you will receive rest in your life is when Christ is your Lord and your Savior. And David, in this moment, he gets this prophetic picture of a Messiah that's coming. You may go, okay, Chris, I don't get it. And it's hard to, to preach a message like this in a, in a moment like this because I can't see your faces. And, but, but, but I want you to hold with me here. I want you to see this here. Because this, this, this messianic prophecy, I love what Heath Thomas said. He's the president of OBU and, and uh, is just a great theologian in our day. And, 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 and Heath points out about this, this incredible prophecy of the Messiah. And he reminds, reminded me that, that when, <clears throat> when you see a, a, a prophecy about a Messiah, it often has a dual meaning. And I want you to look back at verse 12, because in verse 12, you see a dual meaning here. You see, it's kind of like this. There's a, there's a pastor that's a friend of mine, Russell Kirkpatrick. And, and I pray for Russell almost every Sunday. I actually sent him a message today saying, Russell, I'm praying for you. He lives in Hayes, Kansas. And I don't know if you've ever gone to Colorado, driving down Highway 70, you pass Hayes, Kansas. And, and in and as you're passing Hayes, Kansas, you go a little bit further, what happens is you start to see the Rocky Mountains in the, high, in, in the distance. And you see these peaks in the Rocky Mountains. And, and Heath uses this analogy. He says, he says these dual prophecies are like two mountain peaks on the horizon. And, and when you're way far away, it looks like they're right next to each other. But the closer you get to those mountain peaks, you see that they are quite a ways apart. Well, right here in verse 12, you see these two prophetic mountain peaks. The first one is Solomon. When your days are fulfilled, verse 12, look at it. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. You see, Solomon was this king that would come after David, and he would be a king, dear, and it would be a time of rest. He would be the most prosper, prosperous king in the history of the world. No one as wealthy as, as, was as wealthy as Solomon. But Solomon made mistakes. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes out of these great mistakes that he made, and God disciplined him. And you see this, this prophecy, this mountain peak, this dual meaning, it's first Solomon. But then you have to look through Solomon. And you know what you see? You see Jesus. And I want you to think about it. Yeah, you could say, well, well wait a minute. It says in, 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 verse, um, in verse 14 that, that when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. And we know that Jesus didn't commit iniquity. We know that Jesus didn't, didn't sin, but, but look at this. The stripes of the sons of man would be on him. Yeah, Jesus didn't sin, but remember 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And right here in 2 Samuel 7, you see this future prophecy about the Messiah that would come. And what he would do is he would take our sin, he would take his stripes, he would take our stripes on his back, and he would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And what would Jesus do? He would establish a kingdom forever. And when you think about about Jesus, this he came to the world in a miraculous way, and, and yeah, he would establish a temple, but it wouldn't be made out of stone and, and precious metals. It would be, it would be a, a, a temple of his own body. And what did he say? Remember what Jesus said? You destroy this temple, I'll build it again in three days. Remember? And Jesus did that. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. And and, and what happens when, that, when, when Jesus did that? What happened? He brought us peace in a world that it's crazy. It's devastating. It's falling apart. It's stuck in sin, and, and we're stuck in, a, in death and, 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 and trouble. What did Jesus do? He's overcome this world. And this is why I want you to know that for a long time, these prophets have put these puzzle pieces together. But unlike the puzzle we put it together at our house this week, it's not missing any pieces. And this is why I want you to see Jesus. Because he came for you. He, and, and these prophets, Nathan the prophet, he got this vision from the Lord and he didn't fully understand it. But we get to look back on it. And we see Jesus in it, that Jesus came to bring us peace. He came to bring us hope. And this is the beautiful picture of the Old Testament. 
And, and in this moment in 2 Samuel 7, it is one of the greatest, most beautiful, most important depictions of the Messiah that came for us. And I want you to know, he loves you. And this is why I pray that you embrace the blessing of grace that God is giving you grace, that, that this self-existent God, that, and we understand grace is not, uh, it, it's not costly for, for, the, for the receiver. It's costly for the giver. And see, God is the one that has given this gift of humanity to humanity, this gift of forgiveness. And if you embrace the blessing of God's grace, have you come to know the peace that is available to you? You can experience that. That You can experience the, the blessing of his grace. I hope that you, you embrace that blessing. I also hope that you experience the blessing of giving. The blessing of giving your life to Christ. The, the blessing of, of, of recognizing that, that there's nothing you can do to earn this. That this is not, your salvation is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon Christ. He gave it all. So I can just say to you with passion and with my heart, stop trying to earn your way to heaven. You don't have to do this. And, and once you experience this blessing of grace, out of gratitude, we give. Of course we do. But it begins, we give because he gave to us. And this is the lesson that David is learning. David had to learn this lesson of, David, there's, there's some things you're not supposed to do. There are some things that your name's not supposed to be on it, and the temple was not his responsibility, and we as believers have to figure out, God, what do you want us to do? What do you, you want us to do? Not what do we want to do for you? And experience the blessing of giving. Also, we, when you see this passage, you, you have to recognize the gift of disappointments. David was disappointed he wanted to do something big for the Lord. And, and I think about this disappointment when I try to live for my own ends. I, I try to follow my own plans. And I miss this incredible opportunity that you and I, we can run into the work of God's kingdom. And I don't want you to miss the joy of following the Lord, of running into his work that we get to join the Lord where he's working. And this is what David is learning. This is the significance of 2 Samuel 7. And I don't want to miss, I don't want us to miss the, the lessons David is learning. I don't want to miss the lessons God's people are learning. And I totally, I, I, we must not miss the prophecy of Christ. God loves you. And can I tell you this? That the sooner you learn that God can be trusted, the less time that you'll, you'll waste. And I don't want to waste my life following my own plans, going after my own way, when I have the opportunity to run into the work of God's kingdom in this world. Oh, don't you see Jesus? Do you know that you could, you could come to him? And do you know that if you came to him, that he would not turn you away? I think about the pressures as a pastor in this moment. And I, <clears throat> I think about the, 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 I have been burdened about the challenge of building his church. And you know what it's dawned on me is I've been wrestling in this passage. That's not my job. 
It's his church. It's his church that we're building. Yes, with joy, I, I, I run into this work. But, but I just got to tell you, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life following after your own pursuits. Don't waste your life. Man, how is God speaking to you today? Do you know that you've joined us today for a reason? That the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, is at work in your life. And he's inviting you to join him. And, and you know, we're here to help you. There, there's somebody right now online that's, a, that's available to help you. You know, you could fill out that form that, that they're going to put up, that, that FBC Owasso forward slash pray, and you could fill that out and we'll contact you, or you could call that number right now and someone will answer it. If God is calling you, if God is moving in your life, don't turn him away. Lord Jesus, in this moment, I pray that your Holy Spirit speaks. Lord, this is, a, this is a passage that is often causing me to scratch my head. But as we look at it, oh, Lord, we see you and we're grateful. We're grateful that you invite us to where you are working. And I pray that we would be a church that knows what you've put our name on. And, knows, and Lord, may we follow you into your work in this place. For those that are watching in this moment, would you speak to hearts? Would you move, move us to respond to you? Oh, Lord, we love you. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, move us now. Amen. Amen.